Welcome to the podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. My name is Minnie Baragwanath, and this series is based on my book by the same name. Blindingly Obvious is my story. It is a candid and deeply personal story about my life and work as a blind woman, social entrepreneur, and innovator. I wrote it in order to share my experience of blindness with others and in the hope that it might raise awareness and invite others to actively create a more accessible future, one that is full of possibility. A wonderful voiceover artist and now friend of mine, Romy Hooper, has narrated my full book, all 24 chapters. I do so hope you enjoy listening. It is an absolute pleasure to be able to share it with you. 10. A Different Point of View Timing is everything. Luckily for me, as a fresh media graduate in 1998, a new television series called Inside Out had just started. This was a program entirely dedicated to telling the stories of disabled New Zealanders. Shirley's production company, Point of View Productions, soon gained responsibility for reporting on the stories from Taupo all the way to the tip of the North Island. Although perhaps best known today for her incredible documentaries, with a particular focus on the lives of New Zealand artists, Shirley also had a growing passion for telling the stories of disabled New Zealanders. In 1992, she had made the first documentary in New Zealand about a family who were all deaf, the Pivaks, called See What I Mean. It showed a mother, father and two gorgeous wee girls named Sarah and Sonia, who were all deaf, and who all used New Zealand Sign Language. This was the first story to ever depict deaf culture and New Zealand Sign Language on New Zealand television. Shirley's developing interest in accessibility also stemmed in part from the fact that her own beloved father was deaf. Not only was this time with Shirley an extraordinary opportunity for me to live and breathe filming and storytelling, it was the most incredible way to learn about and be exposed to the diverse lives of disabled New Zealanders in the late 1990s. We travelled far and wide. We interviewed farmers, artists, writers, poets, journalists, comedians, inventors, activists, students and builders. We spent time in cities, in small towns, and in extremely isolated parts of New Zealand. Thanks to Shirley's careful financial management of our very tight NZ On Air budget, We even got to travel overseas and tell some absolutely stunning international stories. In total, we made more than 50 stories about accessibility over several years. Wow, what an education and an extraordinary privilege. More often than not, we worked with a hilarious and irreverent cameraman, Craig Wright. Shirley was the director and producer, while I was the presenter, interviewer and voiceover artist. The three of us would head off together in Shirley's little Fiat and have an absolute ball. We worked hard, but we also managed to have the best time together with so much laughter. I was actually extremely lucky that Shirley chose to employ me. Even though she was filming a disability series, I knew not everyone was as open-minded as she was and so willing to give a young blind woman a chance. Inside Out had taken over from its precursor, Bridges, which had been the very first series of its kind. I had applied for a presenter role on Bridges when I first moved to Auckland, fresh from my time with Kapiti TV. But ironically, 
I had also met with some further prejudice, even in the very new world of disability media. The, dare I say it, non-disabled producer of Bridges could not see how a blind person could be a presenter. Hmm, sound familiar? So a woman in a wheelchair was selected. She was and is a very nice, highly capable woman and a friend of mine. But the point was that then, and frankly still now, TV, radio, boards and committees will generally employ someone in a wheelchair over and beyond any other impairment type. If they employ someone with access needs at all. And what's more, the person is usually male. There is a definite hierarchy within accessibility, and overall, men fare much better than disabled women. Just saying, we have a long way to go. Shirley's faith in me really did change my life trajectory, and for that, I am eternally grateful. The stunning image in the brand logo of Point of View Productions was an eye. How perfect. We were using TV, a highly visual, engaging media, to tell the stories of New Zealanders with access needs. What a thrill. It felt meant to be. One day in 1999, a lovely man called Peter Loft came into the Point of View office in Mount Eden in Auckland. He headed up the New Zealand branch of an organisation called Achilles. Achilles International is an organisation with its head office in New York that strives to give athletes with a disability wonderful opportunities to compete in key events, including the one and only New York Marathon. Peter was planning his next trip to New York later that year and wondered if we might want to film the adventure for Inside Out. Well, what a great story and a wonderful opportunity. Ever since I had taken up long-distance running as a teenager at high school, I had had a dream of one day running the New York Marathon. I certainly remember feeling totally inspired when the New Zealand athlete Alison Rowe became the first woman home in the New York and Boston marathons in 1981. This was perfect synchronicity. I became an actual participant in the story and started training for the upcoming event. For some reason, a number of local firemen had offered themselves as volunteers to train with us. This meant that every week we would go out for long runs all around Auckland City. Sometimes the entire fire truck and crew would also turn up to support us. Shirley set about creating a storyline that focused on us all preparing, travelling to New York, and then competing in the marathon. In a moment of gorgeous synchronicity, one of the other competitors was called Mickey. So the working title, you guessed it, was Mickey and Minnie do the New York Marathon. It was ultimately called Go Achilles. How perfect. Every year the marathon takes place in New York in November. As this is early winter in New York, it is often freezing cold. We were the most fabulously diverse group of athletes. One member of the team was a guy called Todd. He'd been a top bodybuilder and trainer to the stars in America, until a motorcycle accident left him with his leg amputated just below the knee. He was not exactly what you would have thought of as a typical lean, long-distance runner body shape, as he was a very solid man. In fact, he looked rather like a classical Greek statue. He had a massive and muscular torso and huge, powerful arms. Luckily, this meant he was extremely strong physically, and as it turns out, mentally too. On the evening of the marathon, 
the wind chill factor was minus four degrees. It was now midnight, and most competitors had finished the course hours earlier. Shirley and Craig, however, were still waiting at the finish line for Todd to complete the race. When he finally appeared, after being out on the course for close to 17 hours, he looked absolutely shattered. He finally crossed the finish line and collapsed. However, it turned out that the freezing conditions had caused Shirley's camera to stop working, right at the critical moment he finally finished. The camera had totally seized up. Being the consummate professional he was, Todd did not bat an eye when Shirley asked him if he would go back 100 metres and cross the finish line again so she could capture this on film. It was only later that we realised the full extent of Todd's ordeal and what extraordinary willpower and resilience it must have taken for him to go back and complete the finish not once, but twice. Partway along the course, his prosthetic leg had been rubbing so badly on his actual leg that he had needed crutches in order to keep going. But after some hours of using the crutches, the pressure on his shoulder had caused it to dislocate. As he reinserted his own shoulder, he had inadvertently managed to catch a nerve in his shoulder socket. He had continued the remainder of the course, several very long, cold hours, with the excruciating pain of the pinched nerve radiating through his neck and arm. When we got back to New Zealand, it turned out that the damage to Todd's leg was in fact so bad that he had to have an additional few centimetres of his leg amputated. That is dedication. My experience of the marathon was not nearly so dramatic, although it was extremely memorable nonetheless, as my training had taken an unexpected turn at the 11th hour. A couple of months before we had left New Zealand for New York, I had gone to visit my brother Michael in Queenstown. Both Mike and my brother Damon were keen skiers and regularly worked the ski fields during winter, both here in New Zealand and, interestingly, in Japan too. Mike had invited me down to visit him. This was the first time I had visited him as an adult and was very keen to get to know him a bit more. He had very generously arranged with one of his colleagues to let me try out snowboarding. While I was actually quite an accomplished skier, I had never snowboarded before. It was an extremely icy day, and after several quite bad falls on my bottom, I surrendered the snowboard. Later that night, I had a sense I had caused some real damage. It turned out that I had actually broken my tailbone. This was excruciatingly painful, and it abruptly put an end to my marathon training, at least intensive running. Instead, I had to accept that I would have to walk the marathon this time. I was terribly disappointed. However, I still had the most wonderful time competing in the marathon with my fabulous New York-based sighted guide. We passed through every borough of the city, stopped off for a coffee at a local diner, and chatted to Shirley and Craig as they popped up to film us at various points along the route. I insisted on reapplying lipstick the entire way, as I'd promised friends back home I would. Red lippy is kind of my signature thing. I vowed I would come back and compete properly another time. Taking part in the New York Marathon, even just walking most of it, was much more than just a one-off achievement or fulfillment of a dream. Much has been written about how beneficial marathon running is as a way to train the mind in endurance and as a metaphor for staying the course when times are tough. I can certainly attest to this, 
and I have used that metaphor even when writing this book. However, the times when I have had to really draw on this concept and actual muscle memory to give me courage to continue have been when navigating complex health challenges and also when social change feels painfully slow. The knowledge that one foot in front of the other is all that we can do some days is extremely helpful when working in accessibility, especially when the odds feel stacked against progress. At this point in my 20s, I was now being exposed to the lives of people living with disability, not just in New Zealand, but around the world. It was the perfect way to be immersed in the challenges, the opportunities and the realities facing access citizens. I was in full access immersion and gaining a grounding in accessibility that would stay with me my entire life. Thanks to my time with Shirley and her extremely skillful storytelling ability, I learned so much about how to tell a story well and how important it is to consider how a story is framed up when working in marginalised communities. I was also learning how differently certain cultures and societies viewed disability and their access citizens. I soon came to realise that there are a handful of very one-dimensional stereotypes that seem to get used repeatedly all around the world. These include the triumphant superhero, the poor victim, the social and economic burden, the angry bitter crip, the isolated weirdo, and so on. For storytellers, the challenge and the opportunity is to go beyond these limited frames and to find ways to talk about each person in their full technicolored glory and in all their wondrous and often juxtaposing facets. Good reporting also requires us to consider wider social and systemic issues that are impacting on personal experiences. And it requires more effort by the storyteller to do this well. Stereotypes are easy, and a lazy approach only serves to keep access and disabled people firmly back in the dark ages. Today, in 2022, we have not moved all that far when it comes to how the media, policymakers, and national leaders speak about access. All too often, the same old stereotypes and one dimensional frames are resorted to. All too often, there is little or no social and political analysis or context. Back when I was at AIT, doing my communications degree, the wonderful Diana Murray had put me forward for an incredible opportunity that further served to deepen my understanding of access citizens internationally. It completely transformed how I viewed and understood access. A very progressive organisation had been set up in America in the early 90s called Mobility International USA, MIUSA. It had been established to actively grow international leadership and networks of disabled leaders. It was established by some incredible women who had also played a very active role in the creation and the adoption of landmark disability rights legislation in America. The Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, as it is most commonly known. The ADA has acted as a benchmark for countries all around the world striving to improve access for disabled people. We do not have anything that even comes close to this in Aotearoa today. However, thanks to the efforts of a group called the Access Alliance, that situation is likely to change in the coming years. In my mind, legislation absolutely has a critical part to play in social change, and it is by no means the whole story. My preferred approach in a country like New Zealand, which is not as litigious as America, 
is also to educate and appeal to the deep sense of fairness which underpins our psyche as a nation. I've always believed we need both carrots and sticks, or perhaps the answer lies in carrot sticks. I have always focused more on social change from a cultural change point of view than a strictly legal and or rights-based point of view. My personal passion lies in inviting people to engage deeply with the cause and to choose to come with us. During two weeks in Eugene, Oregon, at the MIUSA program, I spent time with participants from Afghanistan, Vietnam, Russia, America and Scotland. I learnt about the dreadful effects of landmines on the citizens of both Vietnam and Afghanistan. Two of my new friends had lost multiple limbs due to the damage landmines cause. I learnt about the acute lack of financial support for people with disability in so many parts of the world, and why poverty was so prevalent. I also learnt that in many places, dangerous religious concepts kept disabled people powerless and marginalised, as people saw disability as the result of having sinned and as God's punishment on a family. Shirley and I actually experienced this concept at first hand when we filmed a program for Inside Out in Samoa. We learnt that Christian families in particular often felt a huge sense of shame at having a daughter or a son with a disability. This meant that the disabled member of the family was often kept secluded in their house. We interviewed three families, all of whom lived a stone's throw away from each other and had done so for many years. But none of them knew that they each had a disabled person living hidden away in their households. Some forms of Christianity and interpretations of the Bible and other religious texts are used to shame families and those living with impairments all around the world today. The impairment is framed as a curse or punishment for some prior misdemeanor by members of that family. I believe this is one of the most damaging forces that keep disabled people powerless, victimized, and positioned socially as second-class citizens. It certainly reinforces a charity mindset, which has pervaded many of our conscious and unconscious beliefs about disabled people and their place in our world. One of the most powerful reframes for how I looked at and thought about disability came during my time in Eugene, when I was introduced to the social model of disability. Up until that time, I had unconsciously been immersed in the medical model of disability. This is sadly still the most prevalent in our collective consciousness today. This model views the person with an impairment as broken and as needing to be fixed or cured. The medical professional is always the expert and the person living with the impairment is often framed as needy and grateful. This model also places full responsibility for the disablement on the individual person. If they are not succeeding in life, it must mean that they are not trying hard enough or are too broken. The social model of disability gave me an entirely new way of viewing disability that was utterly transformative. This powerful approach had come out of the University of California at Berkeley during the 1960s, at the same time as the civil rights movement. It was part of the radical, independent living movement, spearheaded by returning war veterans. The social model marked a profound shift in how I understood my experience and my struggles as a blind woman. This is when I finally realised it was not all my fault, nor the result of my failing to try harder and fit into the world as it was. 
This way of viewing disability takes the emphasis off the individual and places responsibility for the creation of a disabling world firmly at the feet of society as a whole. For example, I am blind. That is my impairment. However, I am only disabled when the world around me is not designed for me and my way of being. Society causes or creates the disability. For example, I am disabled when I try to study and there are no books available for me in audio. I am disabled when I want to use an employment website that has not been designed for my computer speech program to work with, so I am prevented from finding a job. I am most certainly disabled when society insists on telling stories about blind women as victims, as burdens, and as charity cases. In this model, or worldview, we use the language disabled person, as it is placing emphasis on society as disabling the person. This is as opposed to a person with a disability, which is often linked to the medical model. So yes, words matter, especially when social change is concerned. Every significant social change movement has come with dramatic shifts in language, whether it is the women's movement, gay liberation, racial equality, or gender identity. The access movement is no different. These experiences and insights I was gaining locally and globally were shining an inescapable light on the reality that people with disability, or disabled people, were and are massively marginalised throughout our world. How we choose to speak about them, how we report on them in our media, and how we view access and disability socially, culturally and legally directly determines the quality of life for millions of people worldwide. Surely we, society, could do better. Surely it was time for things to radically change and improve. I was at a point in my life where I could not just sit by and tolerate the systemic injustice and disabilism. I felt I enjoyed a huge amount of privilege simply by being born in New Zealand, being born into a politically and socially aware middle-class family, having a good education, and now finally starting to get some work experience. I knew it was time for me to step up. I do so hope you enjoyed listening to my book and podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. It has been an absolute privilege to be able to share this with you. Listen out for the next chapter coming soon. If you would like to purchase the entire book in audio or an array of other accessible formats, including New Zealand Sign Language, or to learn more about my work, visit my website, minib.co.nz. Thank you for taking the time to listen and to be with me. See you next time. With love, Mini B.